Welcome to another episode on Catalyzing Radical Systemic Change, where it's all about mapping, discovering, and cross-pollinating what I think are the necessary building blocks towards a planetary civilization ahead. Today, my guest is Nicolas Rotundo, and we're going to speak about large-scale ecosystem restoration. And as a start into our conversation, um, I'm curious to listen into a couple of the defining moments in your own biography um, that actually made you who you are and ultimately also what, what the difference uh, with, with the jobs and um, projects that you're developing. And I want to have you, funky creature, starting giving yourself into the middle of this virtual room because you always quote yourself having a botanical heart and a mechanical mind. So I'm super curious to listen into that and happy to hand over the mic to you. First off, I just want to say a really big thank you, Alistair, for uh, just being such a visionary leader and just warmly welcoming and uh, combining and stirring the pot in every single way. Um, it's been such a great piece getting to know you over the last year and the conversations we have are, always so enriching for me as well. So uh, thanks for the opportunity and uh, looking forward to see how many rabbit holes uh, we can dig up. Um, a mechanical mind and botanical heart has been like uh, really a defining um, dichotomy in my brain as long as I can remember since I was about six or seven, I found myself outside playing in nature. I really never had any video games. My mom and dad just pretty much had me outside all the time. And uh, it was mostly through just thoughtful and protracted observations that I was able to interact with my environment. So I was able to see uh, growing up in Australia, what drought would do through summer months and how creeks would change and how animals would like suffer. And I could start to see how insect and bird populations would dwindle during different ebbs and flows of hot and dry seasons. And it was mostly just from doing nothing but paying attention for days, months, years on end um, that I was able to learn a lot about uh, really how there is like a holistically integrated system that basically everything depends on everything. Um, and the mechanical part was my dad was a bit of a racer and worked with Snap-on Tools, a large international tool corporation. And I was taking apart engines, clocks, microwaves, uh, very seldom putting them back together, but I could definitely take anything apart for the first little while. Um, and that took me into two very, very different kinds of universes, like car racing and motorcycles, um, and uh, deep into um, kind of tropical, uh, tropical landscaping in some ways, like we had ferns and water and such pieces. So um, that's like really been probably the most important chunk um, to like creating a unique set that I could have a blending and merging of both the technological and the ecological worlds. And if you'd like, I can go into my later years after I was a tiny human, if that's, a, if that's of help as it pertains to my career. Um, I mean, what, what you're doing is a very particular niche. And um, ever since I met you, what really excited me is that you really think big, not big is better, but like bold and daring in the sense of uh, what we need 
I think we all agree up to IPCC level is we have large swaths of land that are degraded, not soil erosion, 150 years of artificial fertilizers, um, the biggest loss of biodiversity on the planet. So um, we need people that really think landscape level business models. And maybe we stay for a last uh, moment with your biography is like, what, what, were, were, what were some of the turning points where you had this, okay, this is where I see fit. This is what I want to dedicate my life to. Excellent. Um, so coming about professionally, I kind of took on two things at the same time. One was a controlled environment agriculture as it pertained to growing cannabis. And um, the other was a mission specialist for the state of California, which was dealing with um, sensors and computer diagnostic related pieces towards um, basically pollution. And so really being able to get a huge macro picture as to the most strict standards, which are in California, for trying to mitigate um, combustion engines, which were a big, deep love of mine, um, obviously burning fuel and getting into racing was like such a fun thing, but also realizing the harmful effects is it's not always as exactly as it seemed. And coming into controlled environment agriculture, I was able to take this unique understanding of sensor data, being able to look at many different inputs that take a very complex system, and then trying to get a desired output of pure efficiency. And so like this kind of concept, when applied to controlling an environment, created like a unique catalyst for um, a different perspective than most people in the plant world. So I was able to take this to the upper echelons of the degrees. Um, I, I was able to do things that still to this day um, haven't really been done. And at some points, it's kind of a little bit um, crazy when you look at the, all the different components that come into controlled environment agriculture. Um, but when uh, you start playing the role of God, you actually start to look at the color spectrums of light. You start to look at that as it pertains to latitudes on the planet. You can pressurize a room and mimic altitudes. You can start to play with mycorrhizal fungi and you start to look at microbiology and your solutions and your soils. You start to look at the aggregate mediums and you start to look with microscopes at the smallest things on both the leaves and, the, and in the um, substrates that you're growing in. You started looking at the exact carbon dioxide levels. You started raising parts per million of your air and controlling what the plants breathe. You controlled how much oxygen the roots were getting. You started controlling the vast array of nutrients. And that was because you're looking at something that was $4,000 a pound. Now, I thought like, how messed up is our food system that nobody's paying $4,000 a pound attention to our food systems? And so when I first took this kind of information outside, I realized that the top leading experts that were managing orchards and starting to look at these things had a much narrower view frame they, because they didn't have the time, money, and attention to be able to give these trees this. So <clears throat> all of a sudden, I step outside into my first orchard and I'm like viewed in some ways like an expert at like being able to see what's going on on a larger scale because of my fine minute attention to details to all the different inputs that I had control over where outside you don't. So you just kind of like accept that all these things are happening and I don't know what's happening. It's probably a fungus, you know, or 
I don't know, these trees just die. Or like in the case of avocados, they have a very unique kind of set setup where like they don't always fruit and flower at the same time. It's kind of, they say it's just random. Even at the top fields, they say and oftentimes like it doesn't always make sense why parts of the fields fruit and flower and why sometimes they don't and or why sometimes none of them fruit and flower. And for me, it wasn't so random. For me, it's constantly feedback loops that are able to like start integrating this. Um, so this fast forward, just a heartbeat, ended up taking me to, when I was pretty young, to a pretty giant scale um, agroforestry project. It was about 80,000 trees in a year and um, with Biofuels International in Fiji. And they were telling me that earthworms weren't living. That was like their lead indicator that they couldn't figure out that things were happening. And I started like saying like, you've got way bigger problems than earthworms. If you're seeing a freaking arthropod, like a giant, an animal this big, think of how everything smaller than that is probably nuked as well. And I was like, I was so audacious at this time. You know, I'd been doing a hundred trees, 200 trees, 500 trees, maybe a thousand tree kind of orchards that were already planted. I wasn't planting them. I'd plant a hundred trees at a time um, into the fruit world. And I was like, I think I can go into a totally different biome and help this out. And so I got flown out there and uh, did the very first in the entire world that I'm aware of at the time was organic biofuels for perennial agriculture. And what that means is like, basically everybody spends the money on these annuals that we're growing corn and we're growing all these pieces and that uh, these oils that we cut and harvest and till up the soil and use a ton of water. And then um, we basically do it all again. And we're using machine agriculture. So we're using petrochemical fertilizers, petrochemical pesticides. We're using petrochemicals in the tractors that are tilling these things. So we're growing fuel with fuel to burn fuel. Like, it's like, what are we thinking? <laughs> and so I was like, we have to be able to do this a different way. And I think the tropics were a great um, example. And we ended up focusing on this Ponganian nut, um, which was like from Africa um, and a super highly resinous oil nut. And imagine a perennial is like a tree. So you plant it. And if you plant it in the tropics where you, can, where you don't really have to think about it, you just come back and you harvest year after year after year after year after year. And we were looking at the soil, and as I was saying, this was the first globally that was organic. And it's because why do I care about what I'm putting in the soil for when I'm going to burn it? You only care about organic when you're going to eat it, except we don't realize that a lot of these nitrogens come from post-industrial waste. And so it's literally something that people used to have to pay to throw away. Now we're putting it in our fuel to go and burn it and put it in our soils. And we're wondering why shit's dead. Pardon my language. <laughs> um, and uh, the, the biggest issue in regards to that transition was we did this all organically with locally sourced materials. So we took a $200,000 a year fertilizer bill to $25,000 in local labor. And we had the dankest soil I've ever seen. We were harvesting bat guano from the caves with local tribes people in the Matangali and multiple different tribes at night, sustainably harvesting the bat shit. And then we would take rice hulls from the uh, byproduct of the rice industry. And we would take um, potash, the byproducts of the sugarcane industry, one of the most polluting things on the planet. And then we would take, uh, the, they would eat certain kinds of algae and kelps. And we would take the pieces that they didn't use for food. And we would take uh, crushed up oyster shells um, from J Hunter pearls, like the fanciest pearls in the entire world and all the shells 
that were so beautiful but wouldn't quite make it on the shelf, he would just give to us. So every material was free and every single dollar went to a human. And we made the most rich, organic, giant tractorfuls of this organic soil for, for biofuels. And also we interplanted um, a bunch of different fruit trees and crops. And so we, we only used about six different species at the time. Um, and this led to like a pretty big deal because we were the second largest consumer in Fiji of petrochemical fertilizers. And China calls, and I'm literally talking about China. <laughs> China calls and says, um, where are you getting your fertilizers from? And they're like, no, we're doing it all on site. There's like, there's no way that you're doing that on site. And they're like, yeah, this weird kid from California is deciding to do these things. And they really didn't believe it because <laughs> there, there was this moment here because there's very few in island nations, you're just buying it from like main sources. And China was the producer of these fertilizers. It wasn't like a company. It was the Ministry of Agriculture. And so I got invited for a consult to the Ministry of Agriculture in Jinan, um, which is in the Shandong province in the northern part, the most remote part of China. And I had this like moment where I thought that I could change the world, like literally change the world. And I was like, I'm already in over my head. We just did all these trees. We're like, way. I'm already like thinking I'm, I might've just fucked up. I don't think it's actually real if I could do this or not. And I'm in this like very remote part of China with two translators, one that's really good with agriculture, a little bit of English and one that's really great with English. And we're going out to these fields and I realized how massive the global problem was is I'm looking at these empty fields and they took my phone, they didn't let me take any notes. And they were like, we heard you were, came out to actually solve an earthworm issue and we're gonna show you our soils. And I was looking at all these labs and we went through these giant buildings with like hundreds of people looking at microscopes of soils labs. And you have to think this ministry of agriculture is responsible for feeding over a billion people. Like it's like the most important science in the world is like making sure these humans are fed. And they're showing me this little bits of empty land and they told me that they had taken shipping containers back from Brazil after deforesting for palm oil and cattle production. It was, it was a lot more palm oil, I guess, at the time. And they were taking the topsoil from the Amazon, putting it in a shipping container so their shipping containers weren't back because they were like, this is microbiology. We can see how alive the soil is. Dumping it on their fields, and carrying out the exact same practices that they were to go and nuke topsoil from the Amazon. And I was like, oh my gosh. So here we are, this is, this is why you're here on the planet. You could die after this if this gets taken on and they decide to take on just a little bit of a concept of change. And I was like, they were like, what would you do here? And I was like, I'd take all your green organic waste from your hillsides that you maintain. I take, you're a communist nation. Nobody can do a countrywide composting program better than you. Nobody in the entire world could do countrywide composting like you could. And you could just mandate it. Nobody else can really do it as good as you. <laughs> and you're gonna basically harvest all the waste from all of your products and all your processes from every restaurant that feeds every single person and put them in a pile and fucking turn it over with a fucking tractor. And well, I had three days scheduled. This was day two and they laughed at me. And the guy who was leading walked away from me, just totally rude, didn't even want to look me in the eye. 
they gave me a nice ceramic knife set and said, hey, we actually don't need the third day. We think you're crazy. <laughs> so there's this moment I was like, oh my gosh, like these people, like how is it that it is this fucked that it's like we're destroying it over here and then we're bringing it over here and then destroying it over here. And it's like, there's not an option. And so when I look at a lot of this large scale ecosystem restoration, going back to your original piece, the crux of it for me is that climate security is food security and it's food for the forest, it's food for the people. And if we can't integrate the humans into the system to take care of these trees, it will not be successful. And we can go into that in, in a bit. So thanks for letting me come around to uh, <laughs> one of my favorite pieces.